Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm managing editor Dave Noyce, and I oversee our faith coverage. I'm joined again by senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, amid a global pandemic, civil unrest, and in Utah, a string of nerve-rattling earthquakes, many biblical believers are thinking anew about the so-called apocalypse. For members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, though, the end times have always been a part of their theology. After all, the latter days are referenced in their faith's name. Christopher Blythe, author of a soon-to-be-released book titled Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse, joins us this week to discuss, well, the end of the world, or at least Mormonism's ties to the prophecies, predictions, and passions surrounding it. Chris, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So tell us, how did you become interested in the apocalypse within Mormonism? Oh, that's a great question. I, uh, you know, on a personal level, I'm a Latter-day Saint convert, and I think from the beginning of my conversion, I was very interested in uh, what Latter-day Saints thought about the second coming or about the last days. I think it's really a, a vital part of the faith. Um, as a scholar, I became fascinated about the stories that we tell. Um, so not just what prophets have said over the pulpit or what scripture reads. I find it really fascinating that it's a topic of conversation amongst Latter-day Saints in the pews, at home, and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, a little history here. How, how did early, say, the first batches of Latter-day Saints picture the end times? Yeah, I think the the first thing to know about Latter-day Saint ideas about the end times is that when Latter-day Saints speak of the end of the world or the apocalypse, they don't mean the literal end of the world. This isn't the earth exploding or a complete end to the human race. The apocalypse is a transition. Um, for Latter-day Saints, they saw themselves as uh, the oppressed, and they imagined a future where the oppressed would become... Uh, the leaders of the world. Um, so a transition of their status in the community. And with, the, the, with that, they believed God would create a more perfect world where there was peace and so on. Um, but in the meantime, in order to get there, there's going to be a great destructions, um, disease, earthquakes, certainly riots and civil unrest, wars and invasions on the United States, um, and a lot of political corruption. One of the major themes, I think, is this idea that uh, the United States has a just foundation, has a great vision of what it could be, but within that second generation has become a corrupt nation. And Latter-day Saints dream that they could get back to that beginning founding vision of the nation. Did, did, they, did they think that was like around the corner, you know, like coming really, really soon? Absolutely. Um, you know, Joseph Smith would emphasize that, it, you know, one of his well-known revelations is that it's not going to happen in 1844 like the Millerites think, but it's possible it will happen in a couple generations or even during his lifetime. He promised that the second coming wouldn't happen until he was 85 years old. But when many people heard that promise, they thought, well, that means the second coming's coming when he's 85 years old. One of my favorite letters from the Nauvoo period in the 1840s 
is a woman whose child has passed away and she's moved to Nauvoo and the child's been lost with the disease that's popular there and um, widespread there. And she's writing to her mother, um, you know, her child died because she moved to this unhealthy area. And she's saying, you know, this really saddens us, but we can take faith because we know he's going to be resurrected very soon. Um, so yeah, many people are thinking this could be a couple years off. So Chris, in the, in the 19th century, lots of other groups also believed the end was near. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the Millerites, which uh, their remnant became the Seventh-day Adventists to hold Jehovah's Witnesses. What was different about the way Mormons saw the end times from the other groups? That's good. I think there's lots of differences. One, that it was so uh, politically situated. Um, And of course, Millerites had some of that with the idea of a kingdom being started. But Latter-day Saints believed that we weren't just waiting for Jesus to show up and for things to become different, but they were preparing the groundwork. Mm -hmm. So things, when we we, uh, talk about early Latter-day Saint theocracy ideas. This is all the sort of groundwork Latter-day Saints believes they were doing in order to set up this new world um, before these great events were happening. It was their major criticism of the Millerites um, that they didn't. The Millerites thought Jesus comes and then the world changes. Latter-day Saints were a little different in that idea. Um, I also think Latter-day Saints, whereas most of these groups were waiting for this grand perusia, Jesus appearing in the clouds. Latter-day Saints had an idea that Jesus was going to appear in several different places, Um, that this sort of grand appearance that most evangelicals and others are waiting for is really an event that'll happen later on. Latter-day Saints are waiting for him to show up and appear to, you know, famously in Missouri, right, to a council there called Adam Ondiaman or um, sometimes they would talk about his appearance in a temple. Uh, lots of early Mormons are talking about prophecies of Jesus appearing in the Salt Lake Temple and then playing a role in leading people back to Missouri. Um, a little more low-key than the sort of grand appearance that others are expecting to happen first. So how, would, how do modern a couple apocalypticists differ from these previous generations? Uh, Latter-day Saint apocalypticists? Yeah. I mean, you can mention others as well. Sure. I think Latter-day Saints today share a lot in common with other apocalypticists. Um, You know, Latter-day Saints, probably if you ask them what the difference between their ideas of the Second Coming and evangelicals are, they would emphasize things like uh, they don't believe in the rapture, right? Um, They don't believe that people will be removed from the earth during these harsh times, um, sort of tribulation that other Christians talk about. Um, One of the things I think Latter-day Saints have really shifted over time is that it's become uh, really less political. Latter-day Saints are now good Americans. We are often part of a power structure. You know, early Latter-day Saints had a fantasy of their leaders playing roles in government. Um, many of your listeners probably are aware that, uh, Joseph Smith ran for the presidency and some people believed he was really going to get it. 
Um, there are people that said Brigham Young, when Jesus came, would be president of the United States, and so on. Um, well, now it's not a fantasy, right? We have Latter-day Saints in power, and particularly in the United States. And so how do you envision a transition of government like those early 19th century Latter-day Saints did? It wouldn't make sense. Um, so in an earlier era, Latter-day Saints would point out and uh, some of the fascinating prophecies describe destructions on New York City and Boston and Chicago. Well, these are epicenters of Latter-day Saint culture now, right? We have temples there and large communities. Um, it no longer makes sense to be too specific in what we expect the end of the world to look like. So we uh, Latter-day Saints would be a little more vague, much like other um, conservative Christians of our time. We see a much larger emphasis in things occurring in Israel and the Middle East rather than uh, here, you know, less talk of Missouri and so forth, um, less talk of American ideas. However, we do have from the Cold War, and I think we see echoes of that today, um, ideas of Americanism still being a part of this last day's idea. So uh, that the United States is the good guys seems really well established in Latter-day Saint um, theology. The idea that communists or other bad guys, usually what the United States itself uses the bad guys at the time, are those last days villains is also pretty standard. So you, you brought up government uh, and a little bit politics. Uh, something our readers are, are at least have seen mentioned in political stories from time to time is the so-called white horse prophecy. Could you talk about that, what it is or is purported to be, and how it might play into all this? Oh, thank you. I think this is um, a really interesting document. And unfortunately, when it comes up nowadays, the church and others have made such a big deal about it not being legitimate that we forget that Latter-day Saints were circulating this, you know, first shows up and 1902 in a written form, and they're circulating with each other for decades. It becomes uh, really, you know, some of these early journals call it the most important prophecy of Joseph Smith and so on. Um, so it's important. The, the White Horse Prophecy, when we talk about this, this actual document from 1902, I call it a, a composite document. It includes pretty much every prophecy of Latter-day Saint culture that you could find in scripture, mentioned in general conference, and they're all pushed together in one document. Um, this is gonna be important because I believe Latter-day Saints wanted to distance themselves from a lot of these ideas um, as we moved forward into the 20th century. So in 1918, when we held a official conference statement about the White Horse Prophecy, we, uh, you know, Joseph F. Smith said, it's bunk, you know, don't worry about these things. And with doing that, he pushed aside a lot of ideas that most Latter-day Saints didn't think was bunk. One of those ideas was that the Constitution would hang by a thread. Um, unfortunately, that idea has become synonymous with the White Horse Prophecy. So when people said the White Horse Prophecy isn't true, they read it saying, oh, the idea that Latter-day Saints think the Constitution will hang by a thread and that Latter-day Saints will save it is also not true. Um, 
But that's not the case. We can document that going all the way up into the 1980s and even after, um, that this idea of a political messianism among Latter-day Saints um, is really a constant. Um, sorry, the White Horse Prophecy in general is a memory of a 1843 sermon or prophecy that Joseph Smith was alleged to have given in front of just a few men in Nauvoo in which he spoke of a scene from the book of Revelation, in which the scene, which comes up all the time, um, one of the most important scenes in the book of Revelation, is this sort of heavenly council, and there's a book. And this is a sealed book, and who, the question in this heavenly council is, who can open the book? And when they ask that question, the lamb appears, which is Jesus, and he's found worthy to open the book. So he opens this book, and each time he opens one of the seals, a different event happens. And the first four of those seals are the appearance of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, now these are sort of last days events. You know, one of these figures is death. One of these figures is famine and pestilence and war. Um, but Joseph in this sermon, or allegedly, um, makes them racial figures. So one was a white horse, one was a pale horse, one was a black horse, and one was a red horse. And so in the document, the white horse prophecy, the red horse represents Native Americans, the black horse represents African Americans, the pale horse, different than the white horse, represents those non-Mormon Gentiles, and the white horse represents the Latter-day Saints in Utah. And so throughout this large document, it's the story about how there'll be racial uprisings that cause problems in the American nation. And the red horse, Native Americans, and the white horse, Latter-day Saints, will work together to save the Constitution, while the pale horse kind of is destroyed. So really, the white horse prophecy is that story that I've been talking about, of that changing of power in the United States. Native Americans, and particularly Latter-day Saints, rise to power. The Gentiles fall away. Is that why, I mean, your book title is American Apocalypse, not just The Apocalypse. Yeah. You know, uh, that plays into that. Explain, explain why, and, and I believe your book cover has a white horse on it, right? I love it. Yes, it's yeah. a wonderful image. It's very cool from, looking. From Benjamin West, and there's all sorts of great art that shows these, the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming out, and this is one of my favorites. So I was very happy we were able to get permission to include that as a cover. Um, American Apocalypse, I chose it for two reasons. You know, terrible revolution is actually the opening line of the White Horse Prophecy. It says there's going to be a terrible revolution in the land that's going to leave America without a supreme government. Um, I chose the title American Apocalypse, both because there's a wonderful book that came out a, a decade ago from an evangelical scholar named Matthew Sutton, and he wrote about evangelical ideas of apocalypticism, and he called it American Apocalypse. Um, but I wanted that double meaning, right? So one version, I'm, or on one hand, I'm in conversation with Matthew Sutton's work and talking about Americans and their ideas. And on the other, Latter-day Saints in the 19th century, their ideas of the apocalypse were totally American. We were re-envisioning re this country. So why do you think that... Um these figures like, uh, you know, Julie Rowe, for example, why, why are Latter-day Saints drawn to them? 
Oh, I think that's such a good question. <laughs> so one of the things I focus on in the book is that early on, Latter-day Saint leaders actually encouraged figures that had their own prophecies and visions. Um, it, uh, it added to a whole group project of apocalypticism. And then right around the beginning of the 20th century after statehood, um, we changed our minds. We said we, we, wanna, we don't want people having these ideas that were anti-American, and our apocalypticism was a little anti-American, um, or certain types of Americanism. Um, and so we began to check those voices. Um, at the same time, we began to be less apocalyptic. Um, and so we left a gap in what, in what people wanted to hear, particularly in moments of great anxiety. Um, and Julie Rowe, many other figures, you know, famously right now we have Julie Rowe on one hand and a male visionary who goes by the name Spencer on the other, who both really offer a, I would call it a 19th century view of apocalypticism currently. And uh, yeah, people eat that up. It's is like it because um, Julie Rowe told me for my story this week that she sees a great earthquake followed by a flood, which divides the continent, which then puts, uh, you know, Jackson County, Missouri as the center, which is where Jesus will be going. Um, yeah. So what is it anxiety about world events? I mean, everybody has it, not just Mormons, but. Right. I think, you know, because I study these things, I get, uh, I have people write me about visions of Pentecostals. I'm studying a fascinating Catholic mystic who has all sorts of these sorts of visions. So I think, and a great scholar actually said this long before me, a guy named Paul Boyer, he said that there's always apocalypticists that present this sort of stark idea of the good and the bad and uh, very imminent last day's events. Um, but they're usually really obscure figures until there's a moment of anxiety. And when there's a moment of anxiety, all of a sudden everyone flocks to them to listen to their voices. Um, so I think, um, yeah, the reason we're having viral YouTube videos on the last days or Julie Rowe has, um, you know, an audience where she can turn out books constantly and still have a, um, people willing to pick them up despite moments where her prophecies seem to have not come to fruition um, is because people have those moments of anxiety. And it's interesting to delve into these sort of sure voices about what's going to happen next. I don't know about you guys, but I've spent a lot of time in the past three months asking what's about to happen, right? <laughs> Are my kids going back to school? Um, you know, is this the last event for a time? Who's going to take the election? Any of these things. Um, and of course, Julie has an answer to every one of those. So. You, obviously, you saw uh, buzz about this also when Mitt Romney on the political front voted to impeach Donald Trump, you know, standing alone uh, <laughs> in protecting the, quote, Constitution. Uh, I, I'm sure that got some buzz, too, in that community, right? I, th I think that's right. Now, something interesting has happened in that most of the apocalypticists that I've, you know, watched and corresponded with um, have become major Trump supporters. Julie mm -hmm. Rowe is actually an interesting exception, but 
she's, uh, you know, further right than Trump, perhaps, you know, she thinks he's part of the, that's not fair, but she thinks, uh, she thinks there's a larger conspiracy that Trump's part of. Um, so I actually saw most people criticizing Mitt Romney for stepping up in this moment. I saw mainly progressive Latter-day Saints um, saying, well, maybe Mitt is the, the white horse that's going to fulfill this prophecy, right? So it's interesting to see how it's played out. I've loved the, uh, well, I've loved almost all of the focus on the white horse prophecy when it comes to Mitt Romney because it's been so interesting. We've had memes and sort of funny things. Um, and I think we've seen, I have some colleagues that swear they've met people that really believe that Mitt Romney was going to fulfill some sort of prophecy. But mainly, I think it's been a tool to talk about um, Latter-day Saints and politics and kind of have a fun entry point to it. Um, yeah, thank you. Sorry. Oh, you bring up an interesting point, though, that many of these apocalypticists are anti-government mm. in general, but then they also do seem to be pro-Trump. Yeah. And maybe that's because, I mean, I'm just hypothesizing here, but maybe that's because he, uh, Donald Trump, is is not really a representative of the government. I mean, he's kind of a, a populist lo voice, lone wolf populist outsider voice. coming in outsider yeah. yeah i think that's good i think you see, you see quite a few people that are portraying trump in that in that vein um not only you know julie rose against it and she's gotten a lot of pushback she's uh seen visions of trump and sort of a menacing conspiratorial scene um, and people have said, wait a second, you know, he's one of the good guys. Are you sure? Um, at the same time, we have a popular prophecy amongst Latter-day Saints that's going around called Ezra's Eagle. And it's very strange, but it includes the idea that Trump's going to win the election. He's going to be assassinated. Um, Pence is also only going to be president for a short while. And then I believe that's when we start having sort of villainous presidents show up after that. Um, but there's an idea, yeah, that Trump's presidency is a, you know, we had this, you probably have seen this meme before, the, uh, the quote from the book of Revelation that says, in the last days, a Trump will blow loud and hard. And, um, you know, it's talking about these angels that blow Trumps. And people joked about how uh, Donald Trump might have been a prophetic sign in himself. Um, but some people kind of are taking that idea seriously, that, his election represented something important. And amongst Latter-day Saints, this goes way back, right? In the 1980s, there was a popular prophecy um, that said um, Dukakis was going to take the presidency, right? A, a Greek presidential candidate would, would take over, and it would be the first non-Western European to, to become the United States, and that would be the significant event that we knew other things would occur. And people then tried to apply that to Obama to say, well, we didn't mean a Greek, we meant an African-American and so on. So paying attention to who the presidents are is a ongoing apocalyptic strategy. And what, what do you think, what has the church done? Uh, how has the church tried to control these, these voices that are outside the, outside the structure? Yeah. Over time, the church has 
made occasional statements to specifically aim at one or another of these visionaries as they gain too much popularity, too much influence. But for the most part, what the church has done, remember, um, a major part of Latter-day Saint theology is that people have personal revelation. There's no limits to that sort of revelation, except as it comes to leading the church or revelation for another person, but that God could show uh, any of us a vision of the future is not controversial in and of itself. What has become controversial is the idea of sharing those visions with others. And so I think the church developed a strategy in the early 20th century to say, these are great. These visions that you're having are wonderful. Write them in your personal history, share them with your children, um, but it's not your place to share them far and wide. I actually think that's why Julie Rowe is such a controversial figure. Um, at the same time Julie Rowe became popular, a man named Spencer became popular. Spencer chose anonymity, wrote one book, uh, moved away from the limelight very quickly. And so he's, uh, he's, I mean, it's one of the best-selling Latter-day Saint books ever, uh, Visions of Glory. People have accepted it, and he's actually a less controversial figure. Um, Julie Rowe, because she's developed such a celebrity, um, is breaking that rule. That's so basic to sort of Latter-day Saint culture, that you have great visions, great, but you've got to keep your mouth shut. And she got excommunicated. That's right. Kind and of. In this case, it's, uh, you have the visions, which created the controversy, and then you also had um, the equally controversial idea at the moment of energy healing. So just like we've had occasional warnings to not share visions over the pulpit in the past few years, we've also had warnings against this sort of energy work. Uh, particularly Latter-day Saints who say uh, there's sort of a, a healing power that's not like the priesthood, but it kind of sounds like the priesthood um, that you can visit with someone and they can help you with your emotions and help you with physical ailments and so on, um, which we've seen general conference sermons in the past few years trying to say, be wary of these individuals. Now, interestingly, Chris, we see uh, a person at the head of the church as an institution, President Russell Nelson, who's talking much more often and openly about preparing for the second coming. Um, what do you make of that? And is, does that energize this kind of talk or what, how do you see that? I think it does. I think it definitely energizes our expectations for the second coming. You know, President Nelson had been prophet for only a few months when one of my acquaintances at church pulled me aside and said he had been to the temple and someone had told him there that they knew that President Nelson would be the final prophet for the second coming. And I've, I've heard that around a few times. Um, so there is this expectation, this excitement. Uh, he's pointed us not only to uh, conversation about the gathering, conversation about, uh, you know, take your vitamins, prepare for uh, what's coming. You don't want to miss out. Um, there's a, a wonderful optimism that comes with his second coming ideas that's a little different than what we get in some other uh, discourses, communities. One of the things I find so interesting about him, because I'm interested in these sort of lay visions, is uh, his grandpa recorded a vision and he wrote it in his diary and passed it down to his children. So he kept the rules. 
his grandpa had this vision of what it's like after in the afterlife. And, uh, but right before he became prophet, Russell and Nelson held a meeting with the family search genealogical society. Uh, one of these major groups doing genealogy and he shared this vision with them. And in this meeting, he had his grandkids out and he was, he was actually sharing it with his grandkids, but everyone was filming it. It was going out to everyone. Um, but he kind of modeled that idea of personal revelation and uh, the idea that these visions can be taken seriously and things. So I wonder if in his presidency, we've just thought a lot more about not only the second coming, but the idea of ideas that have almost been folklorized in the past few decades, the idea that you might see apparitions in your bedroom at night, which he's spoken of and angels protected Russell and Nelson in Africa um, and so on. Um, it's just a, for me, a, a really beautiful idea of a, a supernatural Latter-day Saint tradition that uh, I think speaks to lots of people. So I, I'm assuming it's, it's more than, previous presidents i mean as far as presidents in the in what would be considered the more modern era you know once you get past Absolutely. joseph smith and brigham young yeah at least as of speaking directly about it russell and nelson is unique mm -hmm. um i think you know joseph f smith famously uh did the reed smoot hearing and there he said he had never had a revelation and what he meant by that wasn't that he hadn't had uh a revelation confirming the truth of his religion or something or impressions of the spirit. But he meant that he never had a revelation he could write down and put into the scriptures. Um, and I think from that point, we've had a lot of prophets who've testified and uh, shared types of experiences, but it's very rare in the 20th century for a prophet to say, uh, I had a vision. There's been some exceptions, and we can think of some major sort of revelations like President Hinckley and the idea of building small temples. Um, but yeah, Russell and Nelson is a very rare experience. Mm -hmm. You know, he wrote that wonderful book, uh, From Heart to Heart. This is his biography, I think written in the 80s. And even at that point, he's writing about these dreams that he had, which uh, he treated as real messages from heaven. He sat down with Hubie Brown in the temple in Washington, D.C., and in this book, he writes about how Hubie Brown believed he saw Jesus. Um, so, yeah, Russell and Nelson, I think if we took this man and we threw him in 19th century Utah, I don't think he'd, uh, in some ways, he wouldn't fit in at all. But in other ways, I mean, he, he imbibes that culture. So uh, one other question along that front, you know, there was the general conference in April, uh, all virtual general conference because of the pandemic. Um, and obviously the situation in the world right now that we've been talking about a little bit. Uh, and I think a lot of people expected to hear a lot of possible talk. I know we were primed for it a little bit more talk about second coming and that since he'd, he'd been talking about this anyway, but there was not much during the conference, although he did write a piece for the ensign that month that referred more to that. Um, were you surprised by that conference? Did you, did you, what did you take from that or, and kind of where it's at? Because from time to time, the church will kind of try to tamp these things down a little bit. Uh -huh. I, I can remember Boyd K. Packer giving a talk 
a decade ago about, you know, the end isn't near, go get married, go live your life. I mean, how do you see your that? Your grandkids will be able to grow up. And have yes, children, yes. Right? How do you uh, see that? I think, I really think that's the, we're at a moment where Latter-day Saints believe they're in the last days. I think Russell and Nelson's comments have become more imminent, but I don't know that he's, well, he hasn't, right? There's been no talk to imply that this is, great things are happening, but there's no idea this is about to end tomorrow, right? Um, his April talk, when it was published in the Enzyme, uh, really captured people's attention. And so I received several phone calls of individuals who uh, were mostly calling me because they were hearing so much from neighbors and relatives that were so excited about the last days um, from that talk, preparing for the second coming, don't miss out. Um, and so I was surprised to hear less of it in general conference. People did have an idea that this was a significant moment. And so there's a viral video that's been watched 700,000 times now. <laughs> Um, I don't know the technical definition of viral, but near viral here amongst the Latter-day Saint community. And uh, one of the claims of this video came out right before conference was that um, it focused on Russell and Nelson's comment about a hinge point in church history and said 2020, and uh, Peggy and I have talked about this in a recent article, 2020 is a significant year for a variety of reasons, but one is as a hinge point in time and uh, quoting Russell and Nelson for this. And most of the, most of these stories uh, have the second coming or something like the second coming happening in 2024. So we're at this moment right before them and we're going to have this future eclipse in 2024. That's going to spot the end. Um, so I do think there's that attention. People wanted to make general conference have a last day's feel to it. So that video became popular, but also people interpreted the Hosanna shout that was part of that conference occurring in people's homes as a sign of the second coming. Here is all Latter-day Saints. You know, the Hosanna shout is actually seen in the book of Revelation when Jesus comes, right? There's this Hosanna shout. It was used, uh, you know, obviously in the gospels when Jesus walks through Jerusalem, there's a Hosanna. Um, and so many people thought this was significant because people were performing this ceremony in their own homes. Now Latter-day Saints are making their homes temples and maybe we won't return to temples for a while. And so uh, I was surprised that there wasn't that rhetoric, but I was very intrigued by the way people in the pews made sense of it as part of this larger story of a second coming about to happen. Um, what do you think about the endless use in that video and other places, This, the um, interpretation of the seventh seal and other scriptures? That comes out of the Bible, but then it's also referenced in the Doctrine and Covenants, the, the church's scripture. Does it connect Latter-day Saints to the Bible in a, a, an important way? Oh, I think that's great. When we look at apocalypticism, I think it's really easy to, to make the point that Latter-day Saints are Bible-believing Christians with a difference, right? So I 
you know, when I first read the Book of Mormon as a convert, I was immediately sucked in by the when it, reading First Nephi because I recognized it as the Book of Revelation. It's constantly drawing on those same symbols, same ideas. The John, the writer of Revelation, even shows up there in the Book of Mormon. Um, so yeah, throughout um, conversation on apocalypticism, it returns to the book of Revelation, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these apocalyptic voices. And the Book of Mormon really functions as a sort of guide in how to read those passages. So Chris, what do you hope people get out of your book? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I hope they're, of course, learn this history of how Latter-day Saints viewed themselves across time. Um, but, you know, one of the most important things I want to do in this book was to show how lay Mormonism functions, how in the 20th century there is a Latter-day Saint tradition that's front and center. Um, it's carefully, uh, you know, manicured and tailored through PR and so on. Um, but there's also a Latter-day Saint tradition occurring in homes, um, in virtual communities, amongst friends, amongst missionary companions, and so forth, that can look different, can look really different. And in those situations, um, fascinating stories, fascinating ideas can really blossom. So I wanted to chart those ideas. And so I hope people um, find that interesting and perhaps allow them to think of Mormonism beyond just an institution. Um, even though, of course, that institution is very essential to the story and those telling this, those experiencing at this folk level are fully ingrained in the institution, but they have their own ideas. And uh, those conversations for me uh, are really what gets my juices flowing when I want to study the Latter-day Saint tradition. I, I think it's fascinating when we talk about church leaders, but I'm really interested in just what regular people are doing with their faiths. The name of the book, again, is Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse, and it's due out early next week. Uh, Christopher Bly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. And stay safe, okay? I'll do it. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Chris Samuels, we remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Week.